Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. Maybe I created that opportunity in my own mind because I just knew that that's where it was going to be. The stars have aligned. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I call it actionable empowerment. Every single episode, you'll hear the story of a fantastic woman in tech, from engineers to founders to investors to journalists to designers, all sorts of different females in tech who have thrived. I want to share their stories with you so that you can can know what resources, mentors, and life situations they accessed in order to get to where they are today. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast. Coming at you from Belgrade, Serbia, I have the blessed opportunity to connect with Morgan, who is right now in Dublin, Ireland, thanks to Squadcast. Squadcast, thank you so much for helping us power this Women in Tech episode. This is amazing. Morgan and I had the opportunity to connect in Switzerland, just outside Zurich, in a place called Zug, if I'm pronouncing it right. Morgan will fill us in. She was leading an an incredible event. She is forging the way for crypto banking. We, it was an intense layover. We barely had time to eat our dinner. So we decided that we would do, I think this is the first ever virtual Women in Tech podcast episode. So I just want to thank Squadcast again for getting us set up and welcome Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) You got it. So Morgan, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, My name is Morgan Pierce and I am chief marketing officer of a crypto project called Seba Crypto AG. And our ambition is to become one of the world's first regulated, licensed and supervised crypto banks. So we are in contact with FINMA, which is the Swiss financial authority to obtain uh, what we hope will be Switzerland's first regulated crypto banking license. Um, It's actually a banking and securities dealers license. So it's a pretty exciting project to be associated with. And I am the face and the voice uh, of the business. So I'm delighted to be here today. It's so exciting. So I I had the blessed moment to connect with Morgan at her event after she she led the, the talk for Seba. And um, we got into this discussion about technology, past, uh, present, and future. And then I discovered that she's the former head of marketing. Do I have it right? For Oracle back in the day. Correct me. Is that the accurate? Uh, I think my title was director of mark of online marketing for the ISD division, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So I was responsible for 40 online marketing across 44 countries in Europe. So you can see that she has a a wealth of information in the technology space. 
that most of us don't have. So that she has made the decision and the bet in crypto is no small decision. She really understands the world of technology. She understands where things are going. She understands where things have been and she understands why crypto is the place to be right now. So I'm really looking forward to getting into talking about Seba, talking about how she's paving the way for the future of banking and crypto and to, and to talk about how she's even got Seba on the map when there's still so much skepticism in, uh, you know, the general populace and their assessment of, is it safe to to make my bet in crypto or not? Is it a bet at all? So um, I welcome you, Morgan, to kind of like open up the, the conversation to like, how did you discover Seba? What was day one of that? Oh, God, I'm so thankful that Seba discovered me. Um, <laughs> what happened was about a year uh, and a half ago, I decided I was going to leave the sort of normal tech space where I was um, head of demand generation and um, other pieces of marketing at a Silicon Valley based software company. And to dive into the new world of crypto, I had actually already been involved um, with crypto since 2014 when I got my first crypto wallet. And I had already been eyeing crypto for a really long time at that point because I played a game back in the mid 2000s called Second Life. And in Second Life, Lincoln dollars with fiat currency with real money and you could spend your Lincoln dollars in second life. And I remember in 2006, I think it was, I read an article in, I think it was wired magazine or one of the, one of those um, fast company or one of those tech kind of oriented business magazines. And it was about how a guy, a second life player had actually made a million dollars in us dollars out of selling luxury property to second lifers in Lincoln. Oh yes. Virtual currency. Exactly. And so since that point, I was always eyeing, I was like, okay, if it's, if it's, if like you can make a million dollars virtually, then, then, then money, then digital money is on its way. And sure enough, three years later, was when Satoshi Nakamoto published, actually two years later was when Satoshi Nakamoto published the white paper on Bitcoin. And then I was watching it and I decided I would get in in about 2014. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't become a miner when it was, when it was like sort of like early days. But anyway, um, I still feel really fortunate. And so about a year and a half ago, I decided I was going to reskill myself in crypto. And I went back to school. I got a certificate in digital currencies from the University of Nicosia in Cyprus, which everybody thinks is like, why would you do that? But the reason I did it is because there is a guy there who teaches the course called Andreas Antonopoulos. It was a MOOC. So massively open online course, free of charge to, you know, as many thousands of people wanted to finish it. And um, Andreas Antonopoulos is like one of the foremost guys in the whole cryptocurrency world on Bitcoin specifically. He's written several books and he's an amazing wow. lecturer. And it was the first place that actually offered any kind of formal education on crypto. So I did that. Um, and then I, and then I started giving talks about crypto. I gave a talk in Los Angeles and I gave talks all over Ireland and I gave some talks in the UK and Europe, Amsterdam, different places. And, um, and then I sort of became known for being like the crypto education person. And I was actually in the process of formulating an online course in what is crypto and why is, you know, why is the world kind of heading in that direction? Um, and that's how, 
that's how the guys at Seba found me. We have this amazing chief of staff, Tobias Klein, and he is just unbelievable in terms of his skills for finding people because somehow or another out of Zurich, Switzerland, he managed to locate me. And I had a number of interviews with our CEO, Guido Bueller, who's like the most inspirational guy I've ever spoken to practically. And it was like a dream come true. Every day I wake up and I pinch myself and I'm like, oh my God, I'm in... I'm in the most amazing job. And then here's the other kind of like little weird thing about it is that I did my um, schooling in computer science and economics. And my um, thesis many years ago, this is like the mid 80s. Okay, so it's a really long time ago. You weren't even born. Right. probably. Um, and I did my thesis on the effects of interest rate on money supply. So in other words, how do governments put more money into the money supply system by lowering interest rates and so on. And so that my whole thesis was on money supply and, and how that's manipulated. And so now I'm in this unbelievable job where I can take my deep knowledge in technology. And right. you know, by the way, the first company I ever founded in 1988 was a cybersecurity company. So it's like, all these little pieces of my career have all of a sudden come together and offered me the opportunity to be the face and the brand behind this brand new banking concept. Now we can't call ourselves a bank because we haven't obtained our FINMA license yet, but we are in the process of putting in finalizing our application, which actually is supposed to go in at the end of this week. Um, and then hopefully we will have some really, um, close conversations with the regulator on all the things that we need to do, all the boxes that we need to take all, we need to prove to them that we can deliver the same type of security and, um, and things like, you know, KYC onboarding for our customers, anti-money laundering. And so anti-money laundering in the crypto right. space is really interesting because there isn't a lot of technology out there that's developed to actually identify tainted coins. And so we have to take all these boxes so that we can prove to the regulator that, and, and we're, and, and so here's another really important distinction. I'm sorry, I'm cutting off my own sentences, but I will finish. With that. <laughs> Um, FINMA, they, they don't have a crypto banking license. They only have a banking license or a banking and securities dealers license, which is the most comprehensive license that you can get. And so it, there's no distinction in this case between crypto and, and, and fiat. We have yeah. to meet the same obligations and the same regulatory, um, levels of excellence that we would have to meet for fiat in this. And so we have to prove to them that we can meet those standards with crypto. And if right. we prove to them that we can meet those standards with crypto, then we will obtain the license and we will be hopefully the first um, regulated crypto bank in Switzerland. And Switzerland has this unbelievably deep heritage of standards of excellence in finance. They were the last country in the world to decouple themselves from the gold standard. They waited until 1992. So they understand better than any other economy in the world, you know, why this is a really important move so that we can try to move more institutional money 
um, over into the crypto world. The crypto world is a world where there is sound money. And by sound money, what we mean by that is that the money supply is not something that's out of control, which it is across all other um, currencies in, on the planet. And so, you know, if we can let institutional money in, institutional money can go into this place of sound money. And right. that means so many really interesting things can happen for society, for the global economy. Now, it's going to be a reasonably rocky ride. I think that's my own personal opinion, not necessarily um, the opinion of um, of the of Seba. But my opinion is that it's going to be, you know, kind of a rocky road. But the end result will that will be that the world can return to a place where the money supply is back. The control of the money supply is back in the hands of people, of people around the globe and not in the control of the money supply is in the hands of governments and banks, which is kind of like where it is now and why everything is so completely out of hand. And that, and that's a, we, I'm sure we could have like a zillion podcast episodes on that topic alone. I want to touch one more point just to clarify for all the listeners. Um, I, as you were at one point, I'm new to crypto now. Um, so this is something that you're extremely seasoned in that I am so novice in. So when you say you're the first bank, uh, first soon to be regulated bank in Switzerland, is that just in Switzerland or is that in the world? Do you have competition in other areas of the world? We do have um, competition in that there are entities in other jurisdictions um, that have slivers of regulated banking types of licenses, but we're differentiating ourselves in two ways. One, um, Switzerland has this reputation for being a really um, safe haven for for finance and for for money um, and very, very knowledgeable people. Um, our uh, executive team and our board are incredibly um, knowledgeable in finance, in banking. So that's another substantial differentiator. Um, but the other um, differentiator is that we are applying for the broadest banking and securities dealers license that you can get. Um, right. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's exchanges, some, I don't know that there's any regulated exchanges, although my information is probably not that accurate, but there's exchanges um, that tend not to be regulated. Then there's sort of people that you can buy and sell crypto from and pay wallets and things like that. Some of those in some jurisdictions are regulated, but we believe right that Seba offers a completely different value proposition, one, because we're Swiss, and two, because we're applying to be a very broad category of license so that we'll be able to do custodial storage, transaction banking services, um, crypto corporate finance, um, asset management and investment management, so like crypto indices, things like that. So we're going to have a very broad uh, capability when we do obtain our license. Awesome. Thank you. And because this is the Women in Tech podcast, I kind of want to um, roll it back into time and really focus the discussion on, you know, your love for technology and when that journey started for you. Did you have tech in your home when you were a little girl? Tech didn't exist when I was a little, no. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I remember the first time my grandfather told me about he bought a computer because he had a, a proper business and he bought a computer and it was literally the size of a giant room. 
Um, and it was some IBM something or other. And I remember him telling me about it. So that's the kind of technology that existed when I was young. Oh, that's not an Apple IIe computer. Um, this is what happened. I, I was in school for interior design in Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. So I was like headed in a completely different direction. Yeah. And I got a job and working for McGraw-Hill for the summer. And in the corner, there was an Apple III computer and nobody touched it. It was 1983 and nobody would go anywhere near this computer. And But I went and figured out what it did. And I um, programmed some reports to manage my job. And Wait, how did you learn? First of all, for those who don't know, what, what is McGraw? So McGraw-Hill was a, is a publishing company, I'm sure, one of the largest in the world. But at the time, books were really big deal. Books yeah. aren't that big of a deal anymore because nobody actually has physical books. But of course, we didn't have the internet. This is 1983, right? We didn't have the internet. So publishing was an, a massive business. And McGraw-Hill was one of the largest pu- publishing companies in the whole world. And how in the world did you teach yourself how to program when no one knew about computers? I have no idea. I have all, I picked up the manual and I, I, I started using the computer. I was the only, I was like a kid. I was literally, it was a summer job. Uh, you know, I was 18 years old in between, you know, high school and, and, or actually I'd already finished one year at FIT because I remember my boss after the end of the summer, he said to me, he said, you're, you're, you have to, you have to go into computers because it is the future. This interior design stuff is never going to work out for you because everybody in the interior design business, any, in any way successful is male and gay. And you're not (laughs) either of those things. And so you should, you should go study computer science. And he called the um, admissions office at Columbia University and asked them for an application. They sent him the application. He made me fill it out. He wrote me a recommendation letter and I went into Columbia University and it was the first year that they took women. Wow. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's because crazy. Of this guy, because of this. And, 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 and if I told you how I got the job, you'd die laughing. I was a cocktail waitress in Port Authority bus station in New York. And it, he was commuting from New Jersey and in, into New York and he stopped to get a cocktail. I was his waitress. And he said, what are you doing here? You should not be a cocktail waitress in Port Authority bus station, which is like the dodgiest place in the world in the early yeah. 80s. He's like, here's my card. Call me tomorrow. I'll give you a job at McGraw Hill for the summer. You know what's so funny that I'm just going to touch note on for a second? There's a wonderful woman in tech, and she got her opportunity into a university, into not a job, but into a university in the same way. Um, she was working as a waitress, and she couldn't afford to go to school, but she was very talented with a technical ba- background, but simply couldn't afford it. So she was working as a waitress. One of the richest guys in San Francisco um, came into a restaurant. She was serving him. He's like, this is ridiculous. You need to go to school. He backed her schooling and she was really embarrassed about it. I mean, she did it, but she's embarrassed that that's a part of her story because she's worked really hard and she feels that in some, she questions, I shouldn't say she feels as far as I understand it, she questions in some way if people would question her validity because she had this, this opportunity. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you worked hard for everything. What are you supposed? It's fine. Like it's, it's chance. It's okay. And she's like, I just don't want people to perceive that I was lucky. 
she's like, you know, and, and we had this whole conversation of luck versus, um, creating opportunity. Um, and I, so I love that you're an example for her that, the, the, yes, there's a, a bit of, uh, or a lot of luck to it, but it's not because you didn't earn the luck. It's not because you didn't earn being there. It's just, this is the way things have, have to happen sometimes, right? Like, what would you tell that girl right now? What I would say is that I, my philosophy has always been to say yes to the universe. And if I look back at my career, it's a series of what a lot of people would call luck and what I call just say, just being completely open-minded to every opportunity that's ever been presented to me. And I mean, when I told my husband a year ago, we were talking about this last night at dinner. When I told my husband a year ago that I was going into crypto, I mean, he was just like, honey, really? I mean, we have this word, this term in Ireland, and I think they say it all over the world now. And he was like, for fuck's sake, what are you thinking? And I'm like, (laughs) I swear to you, I, I, I can feel in my, you know, in my core that this is where the world is going. And I'm, you know, it's risky, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to take time off and retool myself and go for it. And now look a year later, I'm CMO for probably the most exciting crypto project that's certainly been announced in the last quarter, maybe even longer and something that could play an, an, an unbelievably important role in, in where this whole world is going. I mean, actually one of my mentors who is a venture capitalist and he yeah. actually headhunted me out of Oracle to start a venture capital company in the early two thousands during the dot com boom, which I was also in. Um, and I, he asked me a year ago, he said, what to, in your opinion, and this is a guy that I've known for 20 years and he knows how, kind of spot on my being able to pinpoint where technology is going. He asked me, he said, in your opinion, what is the most important component of the crypto ecosystem that needs to be built? And I said, it's the pipe that moves the wealth of the world from fiat into crypto. Whoever builds that pipe that is going to allow the money to, to leave one system and move into this new system, that, that piece is going to be the most lucrative piece of the puzzle. And guess what? That's who I work for today. And so maybe I created that opportunity in my own mind because I just knew that that's where it was going to be, or I don't know, but the stars have aligned because a, Guy in Zug, Switzerland, somehow found me. I have no banking experience at all. Never worked for a bank. I said, the first question on the interview, I said, why Why would you want me? I have absolutely no banking experience. He said, we don't want anybody with banking experience. We want to build something completely new. We want a technologist. We want a visionary. We want somebody who can speak to crowds, somebody who can be the face of the business. And you're it. It makes sense because I find... When you look for an expert in an industry, but you need something, you need um, mass communication ability and you hire an expert to mass communicate, typically that expert is too immersed into the industry itself and speaks too technical and above everybody else that the message never gets communicated. So it makes sense that they would look for a master in communication who is a visionary and passionate about technology and passionate about building, but doesn't necessarily... 
um, find all the banking technical jargon as their second language because neither do we hear the public. That's not the language we speak, so it's not the language we're going to resonate with. And so to have your fresh eyes and perspective of how are you interpreting this information as like a newbie to the information? How are you interpreting the data? And then using the way that you interpret it to share that with us, um, the public, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I find that even when I give talks to developers, usually the reason why they want me to give the talks is because I seem to be this translator between developer and like and marketer, you know, Um there's, there's a lot to that. Uh, most people speak over other people's head because they just feel like everything's just so calm. It's so easy and natural for them. Of course, everybody must know this information. But the fact is, most people don't know what other people know. And the only reason it's easy for us, the expert, is because we're the expert, right? And so to find someone who's the expert in technology and communication, but not necessarily in banking, it totally makes sense to me. Um Let's bring it back though to your grandfather, so and and to to McGraw Hill. So now you program this this computer. You program programs on this computer, which just blows my mind that you're self taught in that way. Um, where do you go from there in your career, or in your interest in technology? So I went to Columbia. I got a degree in computer science, and, and which happened when you were when you were in the being a cocktail waitress. You met Columbia. Okay, and then you're in school, and then where do you go from there? So in school, I met a guy who I eventually married, and we also started this cryptocurrency, this crypto, this um, <laughs> cybersecurity company. Now, at the time, it wasn't a cybersecurity company. In fairness to him, his name is Jonathan Freeman. I have to give him the um, the accolade for turning it into a cybersecurity company. Initially, we were just programmers. We programmed in DBase, and it was at the very beginning of networking there were um it was the first kind of distributed pcs were going to be hooked together in a network um and we became you know we programmed in dbase and we had to think about things like record locking and now i wasn't a programmer um i figured out in school that um programming was definitely not where i should be focused i should definitely be focused on business and you know sort of the general idea of relationships i didn't i didn't really I didn't even know to name it marketing. Um, and so we formed this company because we had all these people that were working for us when we were students in Columbia and we were programming these distributed applications for like real companies. Like we, we programmed as a freight forwarding application for a steel importer, a Belgian steel importer that imported steel into the U S so that it could run on PCs because it was the first time when PCs were being hooked together by this new technology, which was networks. And there was this company called Novell and um, they made networking software. Microsoft didn't even like Microsoft windows. None of this stuff existed that we have like today. This is really, really early days. We didn't even have email. And, um, and wait, you got, you got, we didn't even have email at that point. No, we That's were programming. A- we were programming like three years before. I remember when we got CC mail, it was like 1991 or something like that. Maybe 9091 when we got CC mail. And I said, I remember sending the first email to a guy in Chicago named Matt Thoman, who worked at another company. And we, we were like, let's try this out. I put it on my machine in New York. He put it on his machine in Chicago. And it was, I remember typing a message and sending the first email over no. to the Now it wasn't the first email ever sent. No, the first, the first email, email that you I had sent. ever sent. Right? That's crazy. 
Yeah, modems, the modem, like you'd have to put the modem up and it would dial the number and you'd have to like put your phone on it, like your phone handle on the modem. Like it was, this is a long time ago. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. It just blows my mind that it, it feels like for the most part, you're self-taught. Like even though you went to school, it feels like your brain is literally wired for this stuff. Totally. I even like I, I that, so Jonathan, who I ended up marrying and then subsequently we ended up not staying married, but that's a completely different story. Yeah. We're still friends and we have a, you know, we've, we, we have a, a great friendship after, after it all. And we didn't have any kids. So it was kind of easy that way, but, um, great guy, absolutely brilliant, brilliant guy. But, um, sorry, I've gone off in a tangent. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, no, it's, um, yeah, no, I remember telling him. In the late 80s, I said, I owned Microsoft stock in 1988 and I sold the shares in Microsoft stock to get married <laughs> to Jonathan. But anyway, um, I remember telling him to buy memory chips. I said, one of the most important components inside a computer is the computer's memory. And we should go to China and buy it up a huge stock of memory chips because memory chips are going to go through the roof. And within about a year, memory chips started to absolutely. Wait, did you do it? Huh? Did you do it? No, he did didn't. It I told oh. him, I was like, this is where it's going to be. And so a year ago when I said, mm, here's the, this is the most important piece of the puzzle is going to be the pipe. I mean, I don't know. It might not end up being that way, but. So far, I've called a few things right. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay, so now, now, so now you go to school. What has been the biggest obstacle that you've successfully overcome, and how did you overcome it? After I went to work for the venture capital company, I ended up having a, a child, and um, my daughter Sophie. And when she was a toddler, I didn't really want to work in the corporate world any longer, and so I started a fitness business. Um, I'm sure the listeners in the U S will recognize curves. Uh, fitness. No. Shut up. No, no, I didn't start curves. I brought curves to Ireland. All, all I did. Oh, you, you started a franchise of curves like, I, or you bought a so franchise. I was, I was a franchisee and I was a really successful franchisee in, yeah. in curves in Ireland. I know and, curves. Um, That's so funny. And, and, and I was also responsible for all of the marketing for curves across Ireland and Ireland was the most successful country for curves outside of the U S of all the really? they went to. So, um, but anyway, I started and then, and then when I was turning 40, I decided I wanted to own some spas and cause I wanted to be able to go get a massage and a facial whenever I wanted. So I took a whole bunch of the money that I made in curves with my business partner, um, who is still really my business partner today, um, in a charity actually that we're, that we're, that we're active in. Um, she, um, we, we, we started a chain of spas up to, I think we had four. So anyway, at, in 2008, when the banking crisis occurred, I had, we had 10, um, gyms and, um, four spas and 24 months after the banking crisis, we had no gyms and no spas. No. Yeah. yeah. Wait, okay. And, let's rewind, let's rewind just for a second, because that's, that's really deep. And I want to get back there. And I'm sure everybody's like, what cliffhanger. But this is something that when I met you and Zug, I had the same questions. How were you able, all marketing focus, how were you able to build that? That's not easy to make Ireland just behind the US. Like, 
what what was the thing that worked? What was effective? How what was the secret sauce that that made it so successful when it was on the rise? Well, curves in and of itself was a tremendous business concept because it was so simple. It was like, you know, it's yeah. like the the slinky. I mean, it was just a simple idea. Put some women in a room by themselves in a circle, do an exercise so that they can talk to each other the whole way around the circuit. And you're going to have a successful recipe. And, and, you know, I mean, Gary Haven, the guy who founded it, I mean, he was really a genius that way. And it hit Ireland at exactly the right time because Ireland changed a lot of its legislation in the mid nineties. And by the early two thousands, it was very wealthy country and women had a lot of disposable income and they had never really done a lot of exercise before because it had been a sort of a third world economy until a decade earlier. And so, you know, we sort of got in it at exactly the right time, but I think from my perspective, what changed things or what I did right for Curves in Ireland is that I got all of the franchisees to gather together in a in an advertising co-op and pool our money and allow us to advertise on television. Whereas if you were a franchisee in other countries, you know, like I remember when we first started, you know, we, you, you know how that, you know, you know, when you know, you have some competition, some people take competition in a friendly way. And some people take competition in a not friendly way. And, and, and so I always looked at competition as the more of us that are trying to accomplish the same thing, the better. Um, and let's pull our efforts rather than I'm against you. I want your customers. You want my customers. My viewpoint has always been, the, you know, the world is, is big enough. Even Ireland that only has a population of 4 million people, there were plenty of women out there for all of our franchises. And so right. I, what I did right was I convinced everybody that we'd be stronger in numbers. And so we pulled all of our money. Everybody gave 50 euros a month per club. And that ended up being enough money to advertise on national television and during, during desperate housewives. And so um, we ran like, three ads a week and, um, on death during desperate housewives and it worked and it, and we got a 1-800 number and it worked for everybody. And so I think that's what made it so successful is that I convinced people that that we're stronger in numbers. That that's awesome. Okay. So via national advertising and desperate housewives, you were able, and, and I, I agree with that concept. I always look at it as, um, collaborative competition. I believe much more in the word collaboration than I believe in the word competition. I love that you share that philosophy with me and then accelerating forward. Unfortunately, the economy has a downturn. Everything changes. You go from hero to zero. And then how do you, how do you process that? How do you get past that? And how do you view um, what actions to take in the business world while undergoing so much stress and and, uh, heartache? Oh, you know what? You don't even, I think it's like grieving. I actually think you don't even you don't even realize it until it's over. You just do like, I just did whatever had to be done. Uh, You know, we had to shut down these businesses. And so like we were constantly moving and selling like massage tables and chairs and stock over stock and, and then, you know, fitness equipment and putting it on, we are, our sort of like eBay equivalent, you know, and and, I mean, it was, it was just depressing, but it had to be done. Um, the premises had to be emptied out. The, 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 you know, the leases had to be broken and the conversations had to happen with the landlords and the, and the staff. And I mean, it just had to be done. You know, there was no, 
we were hemorrhaging money. And, yeah. um, and, and we hemorrhaged and hemorrhaged to the point, I mean, we had leases that we had signed and, you know, the landlords got all pissy and took us to the cleaners on all that stuff. And it was really, really hard. And, you know, we, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. my now husband, but at the time partner and I, we had three kids in private school and, you know, how do we keep them in school? And it was, it was, it was, it was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. And I mean, and, and then, and then it was hard to kind of recover because, you're, it took like four years to wind everything down. And it was, you know, the recession hit Ireland really, really hard. And then it was hard to go back to work because then it was like, okay, I'd been out of the tech business. I'd been an entrepreneur running my own business for like 10 years at that point. And I had to go back and start interviewing. And I was in my late forties and, um, you know, I, I interviewed with a lot of companies, I won't name them, but, you know, read between the lines. I was, I was being told left, right, and center, you're too old and you've been out of the business too long. We want people that are lean and, and young and not lean in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way, I don't have a way. No, in a startup lean, Eric Reese kind of way. Yeah. Kind of agile, kind of, you know, social media savvy, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're too old in other words, and that's how I read it. And it, and it eventually I did end up getting a job working for somebody that I had already worked for 20 years before who I guess understood what my capabilities were. And that's how I got back into the corporate world at that company in Silicon Valley. And so, um, you know, I did what I had to do, uh, to, and, and went back at a, you know, sort of a lower level. Um, but did that for two years, reskilled myself, got, you know, changed my terminology, which is really funny because I remember one of the jobs I went to interview for was the title was, you know, demand generation. And when, when I was at Oracle, we didn't call it demand generation, yeah. you know, it was called lead generation or whatever. Right. <laughs> so, I didn't even understand that the term had changed from generating leads to demand generation. And so I couldn't even like, you know, sort of, and maybe that's why, you know, I was too old or whatever, but, um, but all I, all I figured out when I got back into, into, into my job is that the tools had gotten better, easier to use. Um, you know, there were sort of more ways to skin the cat, particularly in the digital world. Cause in the, yeah late 1990s and early 2000s when I was at Oracle, we didn't have the digital world. We didn't have social media. So, you know, you learn how to kind of um, retool yourself reasonably quickly, quickly, but the fundamentals of marketing have and never will change. It's, it's exactly what you said it was before. It's the ability to translate a message so that it is consumable by as many people as possible in your audience. And it's relevant and that's all the tools, you know, the, the mechanics of how you deliver those messages into the market have changed, but the fundamentals are still the same. And totally. to be a good marketer, you know, that's all you have to be able to do and then know which tools, which buttons you need to push on the computer to get your message to go where you need it to go. How do you maintain, and maybe most days you don't, but how do you maintain a positive attitude or... How do you not just hide in a corner when you're going through a downtime like that? I've, I've experienced horrible um, bouts of failure and uh, each one has been totally different on how I interact with that failure. I do think um, the more fail you have, the more resilience and like just perspective you have about it. I know my first major failure, uh, my identity was 
integrated with my company so that when my company didn't make it, I felt I had failed as a, as a human. (laughs) And that was a really big learning experience to understand like there's my company and there's me and I could really be passionate about my company, but I have my own identity that's independent of whatever my brand does. That was a really big learning lesson. But I mean, having to, in essence, start over now, looking back, you're able to be like, well, this is why it all happened that way. But during the time, I could only imagine that you feel like the world is raining bricks on you. So how do you, during those days, find that sense of, uh, you know, just like lightheartedness or just enough energy to be the parent that you need to be and to be the partner that you need to be? Where do you find that source of light in dark days? People say to me all the time, you're the most resilient person I've ever met. Um, because I've picked myself up and redefined myself a thousand, like literally, I mean, if you, if you look at my career, I mean, entrepreneurs started a company in 88, another company in 91. Then I went to work for other people. Then I went to work for Oracle. So big corporate, great name. Yeah. Again, back to entrepreneurship, then the fitness business and then the spa business. And then I did some network marketing. So I did like the MLM thing for a little while to try to make ends meet while I was still trying to get back on my feet in the corporate world and then back into the corporate world. And and now here, I mean, it's like people are like and crypto and people see crypto, by the way, as a complete departure from anything that's in any way sane. And so in, in, you know, in, in the circles, they're like, really, now you're doing that. You know, you're such a weirdo kind of person because it's not yet. Right. But, um, but the mainstream in Los Angeles. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is mainstream in, 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 but, but in the business world, there's, you mean, there's still a lot of technology. No, there's a lot of skepticism. Yeah, no, there's a lot of, I think it's more popular in Los Angeles and people are more intrigued, but that's what you're going to find in cities like New York, Los Angeles. Um, that is uncommon. It's why people go to those major cities because they want to be ahead of the, of the curve. But yeah. Going back. Yeah. How do you find the light in, um, so, so anyway, so, so you just, um, I don't, I mean, I think you're, I just think you're born that way. I get up every morning and I'm in a good mood, but even in the dark days, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, okay. So I guess then the other side of the answer is that I listen to Wayne Dyer excessively. <laughs> Who's Wayne Dyer? Wayne Dyer is, um, uh, he, he's passed away now, but he wrote a book in the early seven or late seventies. I think er, 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 erroneous zones. Oh, and, I haven't heard of it. Um, and then we'll include it in the show notes, uh, erroneous zones. And then, but my favorite, I mean, I listened to this. He's, he's, he, so he wrote 81 essays on the Tao Te Ching, which is this 2,500 year old, text about you know how to how to live life in a peaceful way wow in a kind of like a a, um it's not really buddhism or anything like that but it's kind of like just how to obtain and and inner peace and kind of stress-free you know attach yourself to the source of energy and you know as long as you have that then you can get through anything and i have a lot of faith that if i meditate and I put myself in the best possible kind of place I can be energy wise that things are going to eventually go my way. And that's my kind of like, I say yes to the universe because things fall into my lap that 
are like the coolest things ever. And I've had some really bad, I mean, I've been fired. I got fired in 1995 for something that, you know, I kind of didn't do, but anyway, it was a terrible firing and I think everybody should get fired once, but it was a real, real blow. Wait, why should everybody get fired once? Because I, because, because I think it teaches you a lot about yourself, you know, how you feel about yourself. And I think it's a really humbling experience that teaches you to be grateful um, for what you did have, you know, that kind of thing. And so, and then, um, uh, so I, you know, I, I, there's a, there's a huge element, element of, I think, spirituality in the way that I live my life day to day. So I'm kind of proud of that. Well, definitely included in the show notes. Can you say one, his name, Wayne Dyer and Dr. Wayne Dyer and my favorite, um, audio book is, um, called the power of intention. That's amazing. Um, I feel like we've had such a great conversation. I literally can talk to you for years. Like you're amazing. Um, I love your perspective you take on the world and I love how empowering you are about your approach. I really, really love that no matter what seemingly challenge you have, you don't let it define you. You have decided that you are a winner and life is yours for the taking. And you, you decide how you're going to redefine yourself to make sure that no obstacle can get in your way. Like, that's what I hear. I hear that nobody, nobody can say you can't do this. You take that data and you're like, huh, how am I going to like reshift things so that I can create exactly what I want? (laughs) Like interesting notes. Thank you very much. And I will be reshaping things now. Um, it's great because I think a lot of times, especially when talking about women in technology or just, you know, entrepreneurs or or pursuing your dreams, no matter what industry you're in, we create self-limiting beliefs for ourselves. And usually self-limiting beliefs are um, attached to some sort of statistic we heard or some sort of conversation that we had. And then we kind of decide that the world is that way. And then that's the box that we put ourselves in. And I like that you don't put yourself in a box. And I think that, um, and I hope that this show um, is an inspiration to everyone listening to create their own realities, just like we we have. I mean, here I am sitting in in Belgrade, Serbia. Um, this is a random thing, but I think it might be interesting to you. I was inspired. Do you know the YouTuber Casey Neistat? The what? Oh, YouTuber. Casey, yeah. yeah, Casey Neistat. So I was inspired by Casey Neistat because Casey Neistat travels often and he always has these really short layovers, but he never just stays in the airport. He always ventures off into the city, even if he only has five hours and he does whatever he can in the five hours. And I'm like, well, F it. I was like, doesn't matter that my layover to to Serbia is in, in Switzerland. I'm going to make the most of my time in Switzerland Um, And I did. And because I was inspired by Casey and because I made that a reality for myself, I ended up meeting you. And I think and Elena, who who took me to your event in the first place, who's amazing. And um, it was completely worth it. And um, I feel lucky to have met you and to have met Elena and everybody else that I met um, on that short Zurich Zoom trip. Like and it was all because I had a layover and because I was inspired. So I hope that everybody listening right now can can walk away listening to this episode thinking whatever it is that you want to achieve, you can achieve. It's just about inventing your reality. That's a hundred percent true. Because how can people, 
So just one little Wayne Dyer thing, yeah. and then maybe I'll, it will inspire you to listen to it. You know, I mean, the world is definitely evidence abounds across the whole planet that the world is actually an abundant, like, like the universe is abundant. Like the, the think about it. The universe is, you've heard this theory where the, it's not even a theory. It's, I think they've proven it, but the universe is constantly expanding. You can't, can't get your head around that concept. Right. But, but that's because creation, creativity, abundance is everywhere. If it weren't, if it were a scarce planet, oxygen would be in limited supply. And we'd have to fight for oxygen and we'd have to fight for, for the things that we need, but we don't, it's abundant. And so you can make anything happen in your life. And I really fundamentally believe that. And I make people laugh because I say, I'm, and my daughter says to me, and what are you going to manifest next mom? And I'm like, now I'm going <laughs> to manifest a house, which is my next. It's <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Shout out to your daughter. I want to meet her one day. <laughs> And I really believe it. Like I fundamentally believe that I, that I, you know, that if you are open to, to the universe and you say yes, that you can manifest whatever you want. I think people think I'm absolutely nuts, but I genuinely believe it. I just got married to this amazing guy after 13 years. I'm 53 years old. I mean, our kids are amazing. All three of them. They're just so cool. And it was so much fun to raise them. And I just, there's no reason why, I can't have whatever I want. That's just how I feel about it. I want to ask you actually one more question. And I want to do a quick shout out because I would have never met you if it wasn't for Elena Udina. Definitely look her up on LinkedIn. A-L-E-N-A, last name Y-U-D-I-N-A. She works with Crypt Advice AG. And it, it is directly because of Elena that I ended up in Zug and got to meet Morgan. Um, I have another question for you. It's something that I'm personally dealing with. And then we will wrap up. But I think it would be really neat to ask you this question. As you know, I have been I have been working while I have been on these travels and I have this conflict because I'm a very driven person and I have a love-hate relationship with the computer. And I was writing a note to my mom and I said, "I wish I could choose the computer rather than be at its beck and call." What do you feel is the most powerful perspective I could have when it comes to pursuing my professional dreams and also just living and experiencing life. Because I feel like I'm constantly in conflict with that. Like I'm such a driven person and I love to be in the pursuit of my professional dreams and creating, utilizing technology and my writing and content creation. But then I also just want to be completely offline and experiencing and having the meaningful connection. And it's just this weird... I can't figure out, like, it feels like a tug of war rat. They don't feel in alignment ever. It feels like they're always fighting one another. You have any advice for me? I'm just really curious why you don't feel like those two things are, are, can, can be complementary because there's sort of time for everything, right? I mean, you can turn off and, and just chill, but a lot of people, you know, can't, can't do that. Like Owen said to me, um, do you want me to go partner? Yeah. Oh, and my, my, my husband, Your um, husband, um, he said to me, do you want me to go pick up Sophie? And I said, um, I said, no, I'll go. Cause we're, you know, she's learning how to drive. And so it's a little, it's a little painful, um, the experience, <laughs> but anyway, um, um, 
it's not really anymore, but, but so, and I said, no, 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 it gives us a, 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 an opportunity to chat. And I said, if, 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 plus if I don't go pick her up, I'm just going to stay, I'm just going to sit at my desk and work. And he said, well, why can't you just sit on the sofa? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I, I get bored on the sofa. I'm, I'm not like he can sit on the sofa for hours and watch television. I can't, I either have to be cooking or doing something. It, I just, I'm, I'm not a kind. And so I don't, I'm not conflicted about my relationship with my job or technology. I feel like I can, I actually feel lucky. I feel like I can come into my office and piddle around for, you know, 15 minutes or five hours on a Sunday and, and feel good about it no matter what. I think you just need to, to, to change the way that you think about how you feel about this stuff and, and not get, not be conflicted. It's who you are. It's interesting. I had this moment, um, when I first got to Belgrade, um, the gentleman responsible for me being here wanted to meet. So I, I shifted some, some things around so I could meet him. And we met at this cafe with it had this, uh, this tire that was spray painted white and this like recycled glass and this flower inside the, the glass and the tire. Anyway, I thought it was really cool art. And I remember like looking at it thinking, I may be on a business right now, but it's business meeting right now, but it's not that I'm not experiencing Belgrade. I'm just experiencing Belgrade in this way because I wouldn't have found this cool cafe with this cool tire if I wasn't at this meeting right now and having this cool pint of beer with a cool person that I'm having a conversation with. And it's okay that there's business involved with it as well. And I think there's something in my head that's like, it's either business or it's not business. And, um, and maybe that's an adjustment, a perspective adjustment, but it's definitely, it's definitely a point where, uh, where I'm in right now in my life phase of being in conflict of like, you know, somebody asked me the other day, like, how are you enjoying Belgrade? I'm like, well, I mean, my time has been great, but I don't, I haven't seen Belgrade at all yet. You know, (laughs) like, and so, yeah, well, thank you for, for your insights on that. I thought I'd be like a little open and vulnerable just about, you know, what I'm thinking, especially that you have such a positive, um, perspective on everything. And I really look up to that and admire that. So I was like, oh, maybe she has a really good thought about this. And I think it's something that we struggle with a lot as, um, you know, everybody listening. Typically, um, the majority of us, we're all very driven people naturally. And we don't know how to, so to speak, shut off or to one of the words that I can't stand is balance. Like we don't know what that even means to us. And I think this was a really good example of something with me where I don't know what quote unquote balances or shutting off is or whatever these things are. And so it was nice to get your perspective on it. Where can people connect with you? Um, on LinkedIn is the best place to connect with me. I'm, I'm, if you go look up Seba Crypto AG, then you'll find me as one of the employees. So that's definitely, I'm not, I'm not really active on other social media channels. And can you spell your name for everybody too? Sure. Uh, Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N Pierce, P-I-E-R-C-E. Morgan, thank you so much for making time to be on the Women in Tech podcast. I know we were supposed to run 20 minutes and I'm looking at the time clock. I'm like, whoa, we went way over 20 minutes. So I appreciate that. I think I got engrossed in our conversation and time slipped away from me. I really appreciate you making the time. If you want to connect with more extraordinary women in tech around the world, be sure to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. Womenintechvip.com takes you straight there at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. 
This is Morgan Pierce, and I am Chief Marketing Officer for Seba Crypto AG from Zug, Switzerland. And Seba is redefining finance for the new economy, and you are listening to Women in Tech. Fabcrate is literally the best outfit ever, styled and delivered to your door. It's been being delivered to my door for months now, and oh my God, I opened the box, and it is the cutest, most unique it's just like you have that little slight edge in the sleeve or a little mesh in a place where you wouldn't normally expect mesh. And it makes me feel so beautiful to wear Fab Crate activewear. It's crazy. It is literally the most fabulous monthly crate of activewear you could possibly subscribe to. Get it. Get yours, fabcrate.com. That's F A B C R A T E.com. F A B C R A T E.com. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.